You're listening to it Under the Radar with Sean Hughes, uh, second part of the Armored Jalali. Do people have problems pronouncing your name? Yes, uh, Jalili. Even you're saying Jalali. Well, yeah, I'm just Exic, so you have to let me worry about anything. <laughs> I use that as it's my... a good excuse. I use that as an excuse for, like, bad cooking, <laughs> you know, not drinking too much. I go, well, look, I'm dyslexic. <laughs> Leave me alone. So, um, so right. Well, like, Please don't hit me, I'm dyslexic. <laughs> yeah, but, it, but actually, one of my favourite... Uh, it was a doctor who, uh, like, when, when you're talking about someone who wants to make a difference in the world, this doctor came out and he says, I'm sick to death of parents telling me that kids are dyslexic when they're actually thick. <laughs> oh, God. Because, I mean, people do use it, like, you know, just for oh my God. bad education. Like, like, that's the thing, like, when we were growing up, there was no such thing as dyslexia. Now, every second person's dyslexic. Yeah. But so... Um, was just, yeah. So how was, how was you with the writing of the book? How many hours a day did you do? Well, being a dyslexic, I found I it very difficult. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I, do you know what? It was a misunderstanding. Uh, we got the time because they wanted me to do the Edinburgh Book Festival. They pushed everything forward by two months, which kind of really... I said, I can't. I'm, I'm doing a warm-up tour between April yeah. and May. They goes, well, we want it by the end of May. So I said, you've got to be joking. And then I said, well, do you know what? Let's, let's forget about it. And they said, no, no, no. Everyone wants you. Even Tesco want your book. You don't understand. I said, what, te- what, what does that mean? He goes, no, Tesco don't take books. If Tesco they, take your book, it's going to sell. Are they if, trying to recoup that $250 million? Basically, they, they're that, trying to recoup $250 million. They're trying to... Um, no, they what? made me do it. So, so, so I, said, I said, I'll give it a shot. And I had to write it in between gigs. I mean, literally writing... Goes at five minutes. Can you come to stage, please? And I'm doing a bit, and then I go. Then in the break, write a bit more. Wow. Then go home, write till four o'clock in the morning until I'd pass out. Then get up in the morning and write. So it was in that two month period when I was doing gigs. Two months you wrote the book. It was about, it was a, it was about an, uh, a ten week period, yeah, of, of which eight of those weeks was during a tour. Well, that's, that is pretty impressive. It's staggering. But, but so, did you get into a headspace? Because I find when I write fiction, I feel like it's not even me writing it. Yeah, just the hand kind of takes control. You get into a zone. I have, I have a trainer who said to me, "Try swimming, and you get into a zone. You do well, two or three lengths. Paper would get really wet, though. No, but he said, but who said when you, <laughs> when you, when you? I'm talking about trying to get into the zone. Oh, the okay. zone is important. Right. Have you ever done that? Have you ever swum and you, then your your arms are just moving? And it's the same with that's when called you're... drowning. Aren't we? <laughs> This guy's hilarious. I can't get a word in edgeways. No, but you get into a zone with it, and I found that. It's amazing how someone can say something. It's good to talk about it as well because, like brothers and sisters, like my sister just said, "Hey, um, you're writing a book. Oh, do you know you should write about that time when you, you, you failed that um, job interview, didn't you? That because you were supposed to drive that patron of the arts and she was in a wheelchair and you really got on with her and then you couldn't pick her up." And I went, "Oh my god!" And I remembered this. Te- what do you mean you couldn't pick her up? What well, I remember that then this whole world opened up in my head. When I was 22, and I was, I'd been a chauffeur driving Arabs, and it was really going badly. And then there was one beautiful woman who was about 40. I mean, really gorgeous, but she was in a wheelchair. And I th- she told me, no, it's polio. And I'd had this terrible thing that I thought she was, her husband had died, and she'd tried to save him and broken her back. But actually, she's a very beautiful woman who was very involved, patron of the arts, needed a driver, and had asked for a young man who was kind of, equally evolved so she'd, she'd asked for someone who was evolved and with a sense of humor and who could drive and i was brought forward and she we had an interview in kensington not far from where i lived and she was stunning it was a woman in a wheelchair absolutely stunning and i had this i just had these fantasies of me and her together and i'd like be her amanuensis and 
maybe something romantic would start. And then she then, then she could see after an hour interview. She goes, "Come on, see if you can pick me up." She goes, "Look, when you're in a wheelchair, you're I am heavier than I seem." I said, oh, "I'll be fine." And I was trying to get into the car and I couldn't lift her up. She goes, okay, put me down. I said, give me a second. Give me, she goes, no, no, put me down. Put me down. I said, I could do this. I could, I could feel this whole life was ebbing away from me. And it was such a traumatic event. I wrote a whole, almost a whole chapter about it, of how actually that was where I wanted to be around people who were evolved and intelligent and beautiful. And it was just like in the world I was raised in, it was all sick Iranians and it was a, guest house of people going hawking up phlegm and and this woman represented everything that was great about british escape and british society that i wasn't really privy to and i lost it because i wasn't strong enough to pick her up and it was devastating to me but was she a big girl though no she wasn't when when you're paralyzed the legs are really really heavy I didn't know she that. She was slender and beautiful, right. but the legs were just... Each one was like... It was impossible to pick her up. And so, well, two things I wanted to pick up on that story. One, you said you were driving Arabs around, and that was going really badly. How, how does driving go really badly? This? Well, it was like, you know... It was the kids of this one Arab prince who were tr- so unbelievably spoiled. So yeah. well, they used to hit me while I drive like that. Slap me, slap me <laughs> in the back of the head when I'm driving... And the other one would like wail like a banshee. And it was a big Oldsmobile, those big American cars. And we had to get back for something. And all the roads were closed. And I was coming through Nottingham Gate. And I got to a road called Ossington Street, which is very, it bottlenecks. And I, and I thought, I'm not going to get. And I stopped. And I thought, oh, the car can't go through. I can't get through. So they're like, you've got to get through. And there's people behind me, white wine. They're going, fucking move on. I said, I can't. And there's 10 cars behind me. The kids start slapping me. I said, would you stop slapping me? And the Filipino servants are screaming. I, I said, stop. Said, get him off me. Get him off me. They said, we have to go. We have to go. I said, would you stop? And then the other kids going, ah, ah, ah. And I just put my foot down. And I went through and I smashed into every single car on the side. Smashed or took off all their wing mirrors. <laughs> And the Oldsmobile had, had wooden panels, so nothing happened to our car. Right. Just a few scratches. I smashed literally 30 cars one way, 30 cars the other. And when we got to the other side, they just went really quiet and they were happy. And then the butler went back and put a sign saying, sorry, we're responsible. And only 20 cars asked for their money back. And was it, it was just like wing mirrors, though, yeah? No, wing mirrors and paint jobs and everything. Right. So, but they were so rich that they just yeah, paid for course, everything. Yeah. But I just remember thinking, God, there was that kind of stress every day with kids Did slapping. tip well, though? Well, no, that's the thing. That's another thing that I found out. They all screamed each other's tips off. So the tip would come down via a butler. We'd give it to Filipino servants. So and by that time, you lose £100, £200. And I get like, I should have been given £300 tip for like a one month job. I ended up getting here's 100 quid. So 200 quid was shaved off. So this was after you finished your drama course. Mm. And what? So you were just like trying to get acting work and then doing some driving? Yes, driving and I did uh, furniture delivery and just all those kind of odd jobs. And so then, so how did you get your acting breakthrough then? The acting break happened out of the blue. It was a school friend's mother who was a casting director. She saw me, because I lived in Czechoslovakia. It was nepotism. She saw saw me and she loved this show. She goes, do you have an agent? I said, no. She goes, well, let me... let me recommend one for you. Are you doing that in a festival? I said, yes. And then she goes, I'm going to get talk back to come and see you. I know there's a woman called Melanie Couplin, who's actually Graham Norton's manager. And I remember thinking, my show's going really badly. This is not good. And then, you know those weekends at the Edinburgh Festival where every show's sold out? Yeah. And nobody, and you're the, you've never been on the board. And then it's like, no one, you can't see a show. You go and see this show. 
So my show was totally sold out on the one night, and it went the one night it went well, and that's when the agent came. Well, your show didn't go well for the rest of the festival. The whole festival was terrible. It was, it was my it was really appalling. Was that your first Edinburgh though? It was actually my third Edinburgh. But it was one of the first time I was doing stand up. So right. I mean, you know, no one's good doing stand up. I, I was just no. doing. I was just doing. You know set pieces of actors doing bows, disco dancing, and a couple of actory tales. Right. I thought I was Peter Ustinov, doing, you know, actuary yeah. tales with no punchlines kind of thing. Right. It was a terrible but show. You just laugh at the end yourself. Yeah. Thank you. That's a, could but, have said it better myself. But that's, but, so then she became your acting agent? She became my acting agent, and then... Um, before I knew it, I was... But at uh, this point, were you thinking, I'm going to be a stand-up and not bother with the acting, or try to do Yeah, I thought, I said, I, I, said, I am also, I, I trained as an actor, because oh, we'll put you in, and I did some little things, you know, there were some sketch shows I did, and there were little bit parts I had, like, you know, cabbie number six, right. all that kind of stuff. I kept saying, can I have a name? Because every time, yeah. I, in all the films I've had, I never had a name, like, I was Turkish man, even in Notting Hill, I was cashier number two. And, it is uh, a bit patronising. It is a bit patronising. So when I did, when I finally did Gladiator, I said, "What's my part?" That went slave trader, and I had an argument with Ridley Scott. I said, "Can I have a name?" He goes, "No, he's slave trader." I said, "I'd like to have a name." He goes, "Well, give yourself a name. We're not going to credit you. Give yourself a name." So when I met Ollie Reed, he goes, "Who are you playing?" I went, "Hello, I'm Simon, the, the, the slave trader." <laughs> I gave myself a name. We went, "What?" And Simon? did you have many lines in that? I had a, f- I had a few lines. Yeah, it was in Gladiator. It was yeah. good. I mean, it was weirdly. I've not seen that film. You've not seen Gladiator. No. I'm in it for about, I would say, three, four minutes. Well, then, by right, that's like, that's name worthy. Well, for a film, do you know what? Here's a bit of name dropping. I met, I worked with Robert Redford once, and I and I apologised to him. So they said, "Oh, Ahmed was in Gladiator," and I said, "Oh, it's just a small part." And he said to me, "Never ever have a go at small parts." I said, "Why?" He goes, "It's much better to have a tiny part, even like a one-line part in a massive film like Gladiator, than have a, a main role." in a piece of shit he goes and I can tell you I've done so many films that have not even seen the light of day I said are you kidding me because I've been a lead in about there's, a, there's about six films I've done have never been released they're just there on a cutting room the film was so bad not even straight to DVD he's not even he goes no it's, it's, it's never been seen and I'll make sure no one's ever seen them because we saw the screening it was bad and it was unsavable it was like some films you can see that well you know do this do that yeah. they're unsavable and I hope no there's about seven films but that's that's interesting because obviously he did those for the money, you know, because he would have looked yeah. at the script and went, you know, this isn't any good. Pacino said that. Al Pacino's been doing films because you have to do some films for the money. You yeah. have to do it. So that's what I mean. Like, would you take a, a big film, even if it was rubbish? If- no, and I think that's, I haven't. I mean, the, the, the last big film I did was Sex and the City 2 because I had been watching the series and it was amazing. I was doing Oliver at the time and there was a one week free and there's a role in Sex and City 2. And I said, well, if they can put it in that week. And they did. And they said, you know what? We're going to put all your scenes in the one week. You're going to be alone with the four girls. It's just the four girls and you. We do all your scenes together. And Did you, did you have a name? I did. Ha- no, actually, no. <laughs> Hotel manager. Oh, no. Hotel manager. I said, but please just call me Mahmoud. That was, I, said that, <laughs> I gave myself a name. And, uh, and that was fun. I mean, even though you do, you're doing it to be in a big movie. But yeah. I'll do it if there's... If they can put my time like that, because I've said no to a lot of films because I can't really be away from my kids and some films are just so schlocky and it's, you don't really want to do it for the money. But if there's something which where you... I mean, I got to spend time with Sarah Jessica Parker and Kim Cattrall and, for a week and that was Yeah, middle-aged wonderful. women, yeah. I, and, and I always say I, I, you learn a lot when you're like with empathetic middle-aged women because 
I mean, what what they actually they gave cry you, a lot. Well, no, they, they, no, they give you an appreciation of things like Kate Bush. I, I I used to listen to Kate Bush, but I never understood what Kate Bush was on about. Like, there's a song Kate Bush sings, which is very, 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 it's very nuanced. It says, uh, uh, "Oh, darling, make it go, make it go away." I thought that was about diarrhea, and right. and then she said, "No, it's a, it's 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 a, it's a thing about you know women's rights and everything." I, said, I had no idea. I thought it was just her. Make it go. I thought it was about her struggling. No, with the, the one about diarrhea is called babushka. <laughs> Thank you. So, Thank you. Uh, but I learned that from someone like Kim Cattrall. So when you hang around those people, you learn a lot. But at one point, you did try to make a break in America as well, though, didn't you? It wasn't try to make a break. It was. It was um, when nine eleven happened. I had a show. I did a show that was the only. Show. It was called Behind Enemy Lines, and it was the only show. Apparently, I've been told that dealt. It was a one-hour show about nine eleven, and all the. Not a comedy around. then, huh? It was a stand-up comedy show about... And I somehow... I look back, I don't even know how I did it. It was like a very funny show about the issues like, how did the Taliban start? What is suicide bombing? Why do they do it? What is What have you got to gain from suicide? Why do they do it so gleefully and willfully? So I became like a bridge between East and West. But this is a show that you did initially in Edinburgh and stuff. I did it in Edinburgh, and that was... Um, and then it was... I got a deal in America to do my own show... And I thought, hey, that's never going to happen. Like a stand-up special? No, no, no. To do my own series, sitcom series. And I wow. thought, that's never going to happen. And they, they did. They flew me out. I found writers. I found the writers who did Analyze This. There was a guy, a guy called Peter Tolan and Mark Martineau. I worked with them. And then the day we were going to start getting ready for the pilot, the troops rolled into Iraq. And then NBC said, you know what? We're not even going to bother shooting yours. There's no way... There'll be a Middle Eastern guy with their own series on TV. So, but what we can do, we can put you. Did you explain that Iran isn't Iraq? I, I, I explained. They said, they said, we don't care. You're a Middle Eastern guy, and America's not going to go for it. But what we can do, which is also in your contract, which is what I didn't want, was we can use you as a secondary character in someone else's sitcom. And I went no, and I spoke to my agent. I, said, I don't want to be in someone else's sitcom. I'll do my own. There's no. You, that's it's in the contract. I said, oh God. But can I just go back when, when they like when it was all happening before yeah. the troops rolled in. Were you on a contract that the like, you know, they usually sign you up for five years, seven years. It was yeah. So you were going to sign that contract I was, to do my own show, yes. But then I didn't realise. No one explained to me that if if you don't do your own show, they can use you as an actor in someone else's show. And then they said Whoopi Goldberg's doing a show. She's seen your reel and she'd like to meet you. I said, what does that mean? We're going to fly you out to New York. You're going to meet Whoopi Goldberg. You're going to have you're going to have dinner with her before she goes on stage. You insisted on chilies, yeah? And no chilies. <laughs> Basically, she said, I met her and she just, um, do you know what swung it, actually? She goes, are you a Muslim? I went, no, I'm a Baha'i. She goes, oh, I like Baha'is. She'd heard of the Baha'i faith, wow. unlike you guys. Yeah. And she goes, oh, I like the Baha'is. I get on with the Baha'is. That's great. And then she goes, he's on my show. And I had to go and do her show. But actually, it was a tremendously um, evolving and, and, and invigorating experience. And so, so I've got no jokes about it. But no, it was, that's fine. But did you? So what you did a whole series where did a whole series? We did, and it was the year. Did you have a name? I did. My name, my, my character was called Nassim. Right. But I told that that's a girl's name. <laughs> <laughs> it's a girl's name, and I so I was just stuck with it. So all the way and say, why you got a girl's name? It's like being called Molly or something. But when you were doing that show, uh, you know about the ins and outs of Muslim, like. Uh, there's a fact that I was told where, you know, a lot of them with the suicide bombers, they think they're going to uh, 99 virgins. Yes. Apparently that's a misinterpretation uh, and it's 99 olives. Is it? Yeah. I didn't know that. And I think if they told them that, 
I think they might take the suicide vest off. I think they might. That's quite interesting. I mean, the way they're radicalized, I mean, they're, they're told all kinds of things. I know. It's crazy. But, um, but that was kind of, you know, that was why that sitcom was at the time seen as very edgy because it was only two years after 9-11. And here you were. In fact, our show premiered on September 9th, a couple of days before the second anniversary. And there was a wave of, whoa, what the hell is NBC doing? There's a Middle Eastern guy it's set in New York, yeah. just a few blocks away from Ground Zero, and the, we're, we're laughing at this stuff. I mean, it's crazy. But so what was your character in it, then? The, the show was kind of like Faulty Towers. It's a hotel comedy. Right. So she's kind of like Basil, and I was a conglomerate of Molly, Manuel, and Polly. Right. No, so Polly, Manuel, and Sybil. So I said Molly, sorry. Sybil, Manuel, Polly. And I kind of ran the, ran Hence the hotel. they gave her that girl's name. Yes, exactly. And they gave me, um, you know free reign to work with i mean it was great it was basically me and her and there were other there was her and there were three secondary characters and but was your character very much put upon then my character was there he was like the the guy who runs the the place with her but he and had nothing romantic with her and they were always arguing about the middle east and i was always arguing about how black people are seen in america it was i have to say at the time it was seen as you can see the episodes on um, on YouTube now. No, I'll definitely check it out. It's called Whoopi. It was called Whoopi. It got uh, canned for one joke. And what was the joke? One week we had two events happening at the hotel. One was a Republican meeting, and at the same time there was a lesbian wedding, and guests would arrive saying, "We're here for the Bush event," and we say, "Could you be more specific?" And yeah. So that was it. That was that was the that was the gag that got us cancelled. It's amazing. And so was that. Um was it cancelled mid-series or did they... Cancelled right at the end. It was cancelled... Oh, sorry, I shouldn't say cancelled. It wasn't renewed. Right. When everyone thought it was a shoe in because if you remember, it was 2003, 2004, the year NBC was losing Friends and Fraser. So she, we, we were actually the show before Friends. Right. And then Fraser later on. So you can imagine, with those two shows going, with Whoopi Goldberg yeah. as a star, it was a complete shock that that show was not picked up. And you up. filmed in New York? Filmed in New York because at the time Whoopi refused. We did the pilot in LA, but the whole series she said, I have to do it in New York. I refused to fly because I'm not going backwards and forwards in my bus. She right. had a bus. So, how long did you live in New York for? In Nine that months. Period? And did, I said, did you bring the whole family over? No, no, no. Because my kids were at school, we agreed that uh, I would get a break every two weeks. I can go home for a long weekend. And so then, at that point, did you think, right, well, this America is going to be my home now? I thought it because I couldn't imagine this show that was doing so well in the ratings, I couldn't... I was going to get 16.5 million people. That was amazing. It's kind of amazing. And even when it dropped... Actually, do you want to hear a funny story? It was... Yes, January. I do. It's a funny story, because I've been so <laughs> unfunny in this whole thing. It's not a funny... It's, it's more funny and interesting, but the... Um, You're backing off now. You I'm backing off from the comedy, yeah. Uh, it was um, January. Uh, there was the People's Choice Awards, which is a very big mm -hmm. thing in America. And then the sitcom section whoopi was uh nominated that year and i'll never forget that goes and it was up against this other sitcom and we lost to them by one percent and the other sitcom was two and a half men we so we started the same year for best new sitcom it was two right. and a half men or whoopi and they won and then they went on and i think they're still on the air now yeah they get paid fortune don't they it's crazy what they get yeah and would you like would you like to have another go at america there is a script, because um, when I finished that, then I signed a deal with HBO, and we did another script with, with the two creative consultants of Frasier, who wrote this great pilot for me, where I played an Iranian professor 
It was kind of Fraser-esque. Did he have a Middle name? Eastern, he, uh, his name was Omid. Oh, <laughs> they're lazy writers. He can't think of a name. Just if, if not, not a girl's name, just give him his own name. And um, NBC, um, we may be looking at, we may be revisiting that particular Oh, good script. luck with that. That could be could be interesting, but then again, who knows? But like, is it not like, as I say, you're, you're a London boy? Would you like the lifestyle of LA over kind of London? Have you been to LA? Have you? Have you yeah. Done, have you done that whole thing? I haven't you... done the like pilot season or anything like that. I, I could, uh, like, you know what? I'd miss football and I'd miss the Sunday papers. Do you know what? That was actually one of the things that swung it for me as well. I couldn't, I couldn't, unless I'm working. But the thing is, you can work there and still live in England. I never gave up living in England. I never really. I just stayed in hotels. These boutique hotels where you can give you like two rooms. It was always. I never ever left England. Everyone thinks. Oh, people think I live there. I don't. I, I, I'm very happy in in East Sheen. And I've got Cafe Nero. I've got Costa Coffee. I've got the football. East Sheen, you've changed, Armand. Yeah, it used to be Kensington. Yeah, <laughs> I've gone slightly down market. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so like so, and you're, you're touring. You're, you're doing a book tour and. Uh, Yes, stand-up tour. Stand-up tour, and sometimes there's wherever there's a town that they want me to go in for the book, I'll do the book thing and then s- sign the books after the show. But do you find the uh, the actual... Because um, obviously you've done a lot more PR because of the book. Yes. Have you found that tedious? No, because um, the literary world's very, very different. They're, no, but I'm just saying, but been asked the same questions by journalists. No, because actually, amazingly, they don't ask the same questions. They really don't. I mean, even now, you've asked me some very different questions. I've never talked about the Baha'i faith as extensively as you've asked me. Well, no, as I say, two new converts. Uh, there you go. We've got two new Baha'is in the here. studio. And uh, obviously, you know, people listen to this, we'll have ten when they <laughs> But they, um, but, but it, 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 everyone in the literary world, they see it very... One thing they don't do is humour. That's one thing that's very interesting. Like they said to me, we understand you did that show Splash... It was a diving show on ITV. How did you justify doing that? I said, I justified it because it was a um, great experience. Throwing is, it was quite an intrepid thing for me to do. And after my dive, they repaired the pool. Joke number one, that got nothing. Uh-huh. And the next series was actually uh, called Tsunami in um, reference to me. They went, oh, I'm very sorry. That's terrible. That must be very insulting for you. But, <laughs> so yeah. they don't do humour, which is great. But do you then try and explain yourself, or do you just leave it just dead? Just leave it. There's no point. In that point. No, no point explaining gags to people. But like, out of all the things you do, then is is stand up like your heart now? I think it is, but I'm not. The, you see, this is. I've got to be really clear about this to anyone listening, and they think he's not. He's not being very funny. I don't believe that you should be funny all the time. Some of the most tedious people I know. Um, like if you talk to Jimmy Carr, I'm not saying he's tedious, but he's great. You, you did actually just there. Jimmy Carr is tedious when he just gags. Then you tell him, "Can you just drop the gags?" And well, okay, fine. And he can be normal and real. Because yeah. I want to be real. I'm not here. We're having a real conversation. Well, that's what, like you know, like sometimes just funny things will happen. But you're right. On this podcast, they have to be natural. I'm not bringing you in, going setting you up for gags. If I want to know more about yes. your life, you know. <laughs> Although when I did say, "Hey, do you want to hear a funny story?" I, I sensed relief from everyone in the room because. You said nothing funny. So oh, well, there's far. no one else in the room. I, I think you're losing it. <laughs> Am I middle age? I think it's I'm getting to you. I'm seeing people. But see, but it is, it is that thing of like I just want to know like because I, I firmly believe myself as a stand-up. I kind of I'm a chancer with other things, you know. Because yeah. obviously you can't do stand-up every night of the week. You go crazy. But in, but, but you've branched out. You've become more. You do one-man shows. Yeah. You're not you. You know. There's not always. I mean, your gags are very very funny, but you don't 
fill it just with funny gags. It's quite very poignant. Well, There's some lovely moments. Well, you get to a certain age where you kind of, you, you know you can do that, so you just want to try and do something slightly different. You're not well. so needy as a performer. No, like, but I think there's a big difference because when you mention someone like Jimmy Carr, he wouldn't dream of kind of putting a poignant bit into his show. It's just gag, 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 gag. And I just find that a bit like an office job. Really? Do you yeah. think so? Because, like, the thing is, like, obviously he's really, really good, mm. but, like, he's doing the same gags every night, and uh, I'd, I'd find that quite boring, just personally. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to build routines where you know it's going to be every time I'll think about it after. I mean, I'm travelling with a group of people in a car, and they go, wow, that really worked tonight. You know, you did too much there, maybe take that. That bit was unnecessary. Um, and I think that's a great thing when you've got a routine that can develop and grow. Yeah. I couldn't no, just do gag, 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 no. But that's what I mean. I'm like, like, it's just that we're, every night the show will be different. Otherwise, you would go bonkers because, like, it's not fun being on the road. No one seems to appreciate, like, you know. Oh, I do. I like being on the road. But then again, do you go? Do you follow? Do you have a group of people with you? I have one person with me, a tour manager. Ah, you see, I always go with tour manager, a technician, and a support act. And Boothby, of, of, of all support acts, Boothby is fantastic because he's such a genius anyway. He will say, Do you know what? Have you thought about this as a punchline? Or have you thought about maybe that? He's, he's actually, yeah. Boothby's actually a very serious person and will look at comedy well, in a very. All comics are. All comics are very serious, but he will say, You know, that didn't work because. And he'll give a very logical reason. Mm. You've said too much there and you don't need to say that. So it's, and you know, we actually had a great conversation in the car because they're all funny guys. And um, my tour manager said, We're really funny guys, aren't we? All four of us. We're like the goons, us four. And I very vulnerably and stupidly said, well, who's who? And then the tour manager said about himself, he goes, well, I'm like Peter Sellers because I do voices. I said, right. He goes, Booth- tour manager sounds like a bit of an art. I said, tour manager, because he does voice. He's always doing jokes. And I said, well, the technician, he's, you know, he's also Sean Weger. Sean Weger, Sean, yeah. you know, Sean, Sean's very good at tech. He's like Michael Benteen. He can make things. I said, right. He goes, well, Boothby's a genius. He's Spike Miller. I said, who am I? He goes, you're the fat, unfunny one who likes to sing all the time. And then wh- while they laughed, I went, what, 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 what? And they didn't hear the funny bit from me. Right. So I felt devastated. Well, that's uh, that's quite a costly uh, experience, though. <laughs> like, just because of your loneliness. Because you, yes. you only need one person on, and you, you're bringing a whole gang. That's what happens. I'd rather be just lonely and dysfunctional in my pants somewhere but, in a hotel room in Warwick. But you like staying in hotels? I do very much. Don't you? No. I saw Jason Manford on television recently on this morning and they were said to him do, do you like hotels he goes oh i oh, can't stand hotels oh you like well i go on holiday holiday with my wife and the hotel's like oh another hotel i thought first of all you're talking to middle england most people never stayed in a hotel in their life but see that's the very point like you know then if if we didn't stay in hotels all the time then going to a hotel would be a real treat oh but, it, but you make sure it's always a treat i mean i had boothby rang me up he goes thank you i said what are you talking about he goes Thank you for putting me in this hotel. So we were in Stratford upon Avon the other night, and he goes, he actually called me to say thank you. I said, why? Why we got ninety of these? He goes, no, I just want to say thank you because it's marvellous to be in a hotel. He was really appreciative. I said, and as typical Libra, we're both Librans. And I said, isn't it? Isn't it Is that toilet? another religion? Yeah. No, we're both <laughs> signs of the zodiac. And uh, sorry, that was a gag, wasn't it? Sorry, look at me. I'm so on. What? 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 The hills are alive. Um, so I think you have to appreciate it. So I, I did my gig. I went back and uh, watched Match of the Day. Had some fruit. There was a lovely uh, bottle of pop in the fridge for me. So you don't drink with. alcohol at all? Don't drink alcohol at all. But that's be, oh, mostly for health reasons as well, because I, I just pop if I uh, ate as much as I did with, with alcohol. So, yeah. But, so I, I appreciate hotels. I love it. But, look, we're all, uh, you know, 
I, I don't want to say the word hypocrites, but it is that thing of like you're saying one of the reasons uh, you know you didn't want to break in America is like your family life over here. Yes. But do you miss your family when you're on tour? Then? I d- um, yes, I do. I mean, we talk a lot on the phone, and uh, I mean, it's it's a that kind of question is interesting because you do miss them, you know, and, and, and that's why I come back. I come back in the middle of it. I'll, I'll never be away for more than three or four nights and I'll always come back. But, you know, they don't really care. But also England's like quite a relatively small country. You can't yeah. get back from most gigs, but you always stay over. Because I, 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 you got your new gang. I got my new gang. I, I come back and I try and show the kids. I, I went shopping the other day and filled the fridge up and my 18-year-old son opened it and looked at it and said, hmm, good to see you making yourself useful in my house. You know, he's very kind of like... This is our house. You don't really belong, and I don't like that. I don't like this kind of. They've well, got this attitude like that he's a really good comic. Yeah, I think he is. They're funnier than me because they because they, kids these days they watch things like Family Guy. Yeah, my kids watch Family Guy, so they're very sharp. And if I ever do something that doesn't make them laugh, they'll they'll really make me know that that just wasn't quite good enough, Dad. Was it? You're but not quite they're funny probably enough. allowable. That's allowable. Them being That's allowable, yeah, yeah. But see, when I talk about, like, you know, the, the, the hotels and stuff, it's more like uh, you have to leave a hotel at midday, latest. But then you've got the whole day in a town that isn't necessarily worthy of six hours of your time. So how do you pass that? Yes, like Spalding. We were in Spalding the other night. And oh, there you go. We went to the, see the Man City-Chelsea game. And it was, you know, I swear to God, we walked in the only place that showed Sky Sports, and it looked like all of the town's recovering alcoholics were there saying... Fuck it, let's have a drink, you know. And they were all there was this bloke was was so off his face and so incoherent. I didn't understand a word he was saying. And that was the landlord, and they all wanted pictures and selfies with me. And the music was too loud, so that all the women were cackling just yeah. too high. And Boothby said, "Go on," and because I, I never, cause I often I said, "Excuse me, my, my, excuse me, you take, the, you take the sound down a bit." <laughs> they always make fun of me that I have the temerity to do that, but they did. They put it down, and it was. It was okay, but some of these towns are crazy with crazy people. I know. But I love it. I love it because it's part. When you're there and you're with the people, you understand what the people want. But the, when you're with your audience, you are. But then, as you say, you go out and you're in the hotel, and and then there's a bit of craziness going on. And then during the yeah. day, it's, sometimes it can be quite. Ang- I find it uh, anxiety. Quite anxious. You get anxious. Why? Well, just because I've got six hours in this place and like dressing rooms. I don't know if it's a general rule in mm. every theatre that they go. Uh, the finest architecture ever outside. Can we make sure the dressing rooms are the most oppressing rooms yeah, in this whole really place? Yeah, they are awful. Yeah. yeah, and obviously anyone who's in that dressing room has got low-level anxiety because they're performing. Yeah. So why do they make them so dreary? I heard a story that Eddie Izzard, whenever he taught, he'd send a team ahead who would deck out the dressing room with kind of Moroccan carpets and incense and these Chinese bowls, so he would feel in a meditative. In a proper meditative state before he's, he went he's on stage as well, hasn't he? Yeah, but that was about ten years ago. Because Boothby well, was saying, you "What's he asking for now?" Then I don't know. I have no idea. But they're literally a team, a team of three or four people that go in there, and they put they put in music. So when he came in, even if it's a small, crappy dressing room, and we're talking the same tours yeah, that yeah. you and I do, but even like place like in Tewkesbury, where you, you leave the middle one free because Eric Morgan yeah. died there, but the other ones are pretty awful. But it would they'd come in, there'd be incense burning carpets, there'd be you know, like sounds of dolphins, and he'd always get there like five o'clock, so he'd have a good three hours. Really? And then after the show, he'd, he'd, he'd put it in his contract, he'd need an hour to come down, receiving guests, being with friends. 
it was a very high quality. An hour on his own after the show. Well, because he's uh, he's got guests coming. Guests right. to the show uh, sometimes wouldn't, but he'd still have an hour, so he can come down and relax. Then they'd leave. So he would use that almost like a hotel room because he wanted to be surrounded by beauty, and I like that. Right, last question for people who are interested in comedy, and then I'll let you get on with your mm. book signings and your tour and uh, that American sitcom, which I really hope happens. For and you. generally being very successful. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Is how uh, when do you like how long before a show do you like to get to the theatre? Oh, a good two hours. Always has to be two hours. Really? Because I've done it before. Where I've been there literally as th- things always go wrong. I had Ian Stone had to open for me re- recently because I had I could only get there two minutes before the end of the break up and I right. went on and it's just because I asked for a little table to put water, but they put this massive school desk which took up the whole second half. Of the of the stage, and I couldn't but go there. Surely, with your gang of fifty eight helpers, they'd have sorted that stuff out for you. Um, they should. That was actually one time I didn't have them. It was the the, the warm up tour. So I, I have the helpers now, and I, I like to get there just to make sure sound check. There was a routine, and I'm yeah. I'm quite anal about it. Ten minutes beforehand for me. Is that what you do? Yeah, you just show up. Well, like, I'll, I'll go there initially just to check it out, but then it's back to the hotel, and I just say pick me up as late as possible. You don't do mantras. You don't do mantras before you go on stage. We all do mantras. What's your mantra? Well, Let's finish on... Well, the one that Steve Jameson used to do was actually one that Lilo Ross used to do, which is a lot of comics do from our background, all the Semitic ones. We all say, I'm funny, I know I'm funny, and I've got the right to be here. Don't you do that? No, I just have a <laughs> sip of water and they go... Uh, I always go on to music and they go, there's your cue. <laughs> you've been listening thank you so much Armand. you've been a great real, to be uh, here man pleasure. thank you um, you've been listening to On The Royal with Sean just go to see Armand go to see me on tour thank you so much for listening uh, have a lovely night